What do my favorite Mouseketeer, Annette Funicello, quarterback Roman Gabriel, actor Richard Pryor, and singer Lena Horne all have in common? To learn more, stay tuned to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jane Ness. Dr. Ness is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics with Joint Appointments in Neurology and Neurobiology at the Children's Hospital of Alabama in Birmingham. Dr. Ness is the Director of the Center for Pediatric Onset Demyelinating Disease and an Associate Scientist at the Civitan Research Center and the Center for Gliobiology and Medicine. Today we are discussing the diagnosis and treatment of pediatric multiple sclerosis. Welcome, Dr. Ness, and thanks for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thanks for letting me speak with you today. In a nutshell, what are the core symptoms that would trigger a workup for pediatric MS and other demyelinating diseases? It's going to be symptoms that are referable to the central nervous system, which would include symptoms referable to the optic nerves, the brain, spinal cord, and these kind of symptoms would include vision loss in one eye or sometimes both eyes. Typically, it can be fuzzy vision. It's usually all of the vision in that eye. Often the color red, for example, doesn't seem as bright with that eye, so that's suggestive of optic neuritis. Sometimes there's pain with eye movement. Sometimes there's double vision or difficulty speaking or difficulty swallowing or numbness on one side of the face. That suggests that there might be an abnormality in the brainstem. Or there can be weakness in the arm or leg or numbness that can suggest either brain, it could be cord, could be brainstem, or there can be difficulty with bladder function or bowel function or difficulty, a band-like sensation around the waist, which would suggest that there's problems in the spinal cord. Visual changes also occur in migraine headache, which is obviously a lot more common in children. At what point do you say this visual change could be a demyelinating process versus a migraine headache other than, because can you get a headache with the presentation of MS? But usually it's painless. Rarely are there mental status changes so that, you know, your thinking should be normal. And these symptoms need to last at least 24 hours. Ah, okay. So that's an important point. What makes up the minimal workup for a child who presents with an initial demyelinating event? Top of my list is getting an MRI. And that is useful for ruling out a number of other disorders. There's a lot of neurodegenerative disorders that are mimickers of demyelinating disease, and sometimes it takes a while and the repeat MRIs to sort it out. It can sometimes be a seizure. That Some children present with a seizure, and then they're weak on one side, and, well, you know, is this just part of their postictal phenomenon, or is this, you know, the beginning of something else? That's a spinal tap is critical. And I think the big thing for pediatricians is if a child comes in and is, you know, really obtunded and maybe has some focal neurologic deficits, is to get plenty of CSF. We really don't want to have to go back and tap that kid again. They're going to remake their CSF again in less than an hour. And again, pediatricians are really loath to draw very much CSF, but we need about four or five extra mils. And I know it's hard when the kid's kicking and screaming, but if you, if you can get it for us, it's really helpful. So that's probably the two, I think, starting out with the MRI, CSF, and then you, sort of, you tailor your workup from there. I typically do an autoimmune workup and look for ANA, SED rate, look at thyroid function. I'm trying to actually find reasons why it could be something else other than MS. And for the MRI, is the brain sufficient or do you have to... It depends where your symptoms are. Obviously, if you're worried about your child's not moving their legs and you're worried about cord compression, you're going to go for an MRI and you may push to get an emergent MRI if you're worried about cord compression. Yeah, because I've read that the cervical spine should be included. I actually recommend the whole, it takes about two hours, and then plus you've got to get sedation for a lot of these kids mm-hmm. to get 
both the brain and the spine done. So many times you have to do them at separate settings. And so, of course, you know, go for, you know, either brain or spine, wherever your symptoms are coming from. But I do recommend that both brain and uh, the spine down to the conus need to be imaged because often there's, even if there's not symptoms directly relatable to, for example, the spine, you often see lesions there. And then we're always asked, doctor, do you want it with or without contrast? I actually ask that you get it with contrast when you're looking for demyelinating lesions. And again, because it gives you a sense for how active the lesions are and that, you know, active lesions will light up with contrast where, you know, if they're little older lesions, which may be 24 hours, maybe two weeks, um, there's some variability in that, but it can give us a sense for how active the process is. And we all know to order on the spinal fluid cell count and protein and glucose. What specifically should we order if we're looking for multiple sclerosis or a demyelinating disease? There's something called the multiple sclerosis panel, or at least that's what we call it here, the MS panel, and it includes measurement of the immunoglobulins and the albumin in the CSF. It's critical to send a serum sample with that CSF because it's done as a ratio of the IgG to albumin in the CSF compared to the IgG albumin ratio in the serum. And two key parts of that is they'll see, you know, how active is IgG being formed within the CSF. And so that's called the IgG index. And and again, it's done as a ratio relative to the serum. There's something else that we look for called oligoclonal bands. And oligoclonal bands aren't a 100% multiple sclerosis, but they're pretty specific. It's fairly helpful in saying that, you know, this could be MS, but although not 100%. I'd like to pause for just a moment to welcome those who are just joining us and let them know they're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jane Ness. We're discussing the diagnosis and treatment of pediatric multiple sclerosis. Once these core tests are done, are they sufficient or are there other things that you would be doing as part of your initial evaluation? One of the things, again, to to rule out other things. So, for example, if it looks like the MRI is worrisome for certain types of neurodegenerative disease, such as adrenal leukodystrophy, then you may want to send off tests that rule that out. You won't want to get in every, you know, certainly girls, but, you know, on a boy, if you're worried about that, that you can send off very long-chain fatty acids. Sometimes you tailor that. Again, I typically get an autoimmune workup, and much of the time, which turns out negative, you, of course, want to do a good infectious disease workup, especially if there's been fever or altered mentation that makes you worry about encephalitis. If there's been a C or there's altered mental status, I'll often get an EEG. And then I think after the first episode, and let's say that we've treated either with or without changes in mental status, if it was with change in mental status and there's big fluffy lesions on the MRI, typically we've diagnosed that as acute disseminated encephalomyelitis or ADEM. If there was no change in mental status and sort of a focal neurologic lesion, it's, it will typically classify that as a clinically isolated syndrome or the f- a first-time event. But then we'll repeat the MRI a period of time later, between three and six months later is usually what I use. I mean, kinda, it kind of depends on the kid and, and what the MRI looks like and how suspicious I am for MS based on that MRI. If you've concluded that you've reached the diagnosis, what's currently the standard of care and what's your approach once the diagnosis is made? Well, for example, let me just back up a little bit. ADEM or ADEM, usually the MRI will get better over time. MS, the MRI usually, you know, even though the lesions might get a little bit smaller, the lesions don't go away. And typically over time, more lesions come. If I've made the decision, you know, after the acute phase and whether or not we've treated with steroids for the acute episode is the most common, but down the road, let's say we decided it's MS. Then it'll be a discussion of options for treatment that are just the same as adults, which include 
Avonex, Rebif, Betaserin. These are interferon beta drugs. There's a glutamine acetate called Capaxone, and these are all injected medications. And these are disease-modifying agents? Disease-modifying therapies. There's no data on which drug is best in kids or adults. So the presentation of the MS, the type of MS, doesn't affect your treatment choice? No. 95% of kids present with what's called relapsing, remitting disease. They have an episode, they get better. They have another episode, they get better. And over time, they may you know, accumulate disability. But our goal is with the disease-modifying therapies to spread those relapses as far apart as possible and to hopefully prevent the accumulation of a disability over time. And then how long do you stay on disease-modifying therapy? Right now, we're saying lifelong. And then whenever you say to a child, well, you're going to have to be in shots for the rest of your life, what we tell them is that there's many other drugs in the pipeline coming down the road that, you know, our hope is that you won't be on shots always, but you probably need to be on some type of medication. And, and the example we give, this is like treating diabetes. This is like treating high blood pressure. Yes, it's lifelong, but, you know, you can live a good, long, healthy life if you take care of yourself and take your medicine, and hopefully, you know, you're taking this now to prevent complications down the road. And what kind of results have you seen from the disease-modifying therapy? What's the outlook? Well, in general, you know, the problem is we're instituting therapy for an outcome that's 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So we haven't been doing this long enough to know for sure what difference it makes. But, you know, we certainly have seen kids who looked like they were having multiple relapses, got on therapy, relapses quieted down, MRI stayed stable. And so in the short term, it looks like they do pretty well. But it's really going to be 10, 15, 20 years before we know for sure. Familial incidence increases the risk of siblings to have MS. If one child has MS in a family, is there any way of testing or screening other family members, such as using evoked potentials? Because now that you have neuroprotective disease-modifying therapy, I'm just thinking, you know, if you pick it up even before it becomes clinically manifest, maybe something else could be done. At this point, we are not recommending routine screening with either MRI or with, you know, evoked potentials or anything. I mean, we're really waiting for that you know, you really have to wait for that event to happen. I mean, you know, we do have a couple of SIB pairs with MS. We do have sometimes where the child's developed MS and then the parent. And, there, you know, there is a slight increased risk in family members of first-degree relatives. However, for example, I have some patients that we have followed who have abnormal MRIs but have never had clinical symptoms. Those kids we don't put on disease-modifying therapy unless they really something changes with their cognition or something or until they have their event. And so think about if we're not treating those kids, we certainly aren't going to be looking for trouble. From your research on neuroprotection, is there anything coming down the pipeline that people should be optimistic about? There are a lot of things that are potentially out there. There is nothing specific, and this is true for MS, for stroke, for a number of disorders that is, you know, 100% yet. And again, I, I think we need to wait and see. I, for patients, I think you know, having a good, healthy diet and things like that are just as getting plenty of exercise are just as important as any specific drug. You mentioned diet. Andrew Weil is a physician. I believe he's in Arizona. He's sort of the guru of integrative medicine. I just hate to give away my age, but in the recent ARP journal or magazine that came, they have Dr. Weil's anti-inflammatory diet, including ginger, turmeric, dark chocolate, I like that part, green, white teas. Is there anything dietary that might contribute in an anti-inflammatory way? Parents, obviously, with children with any kind of a chronic illness are always looking for complementary alternative therapies. Is there anything that they should consider doing that has shown some evidence-based effects? No, not as far as anti-inflammatory, you know, direct anti-inflammatory. We certainly use anti-inflammatory agents such as steroids in the middle of an acute exacerbation. However, there's actually been some interest in vitamin D 
And, you know, one of the things is that, uh, as you may be aware, is that MS is more common in northern latitudes, less common around the tropics. It's not been clear why. And there's now a lot of interest in, is you know, vitamin D exposure part of the mechanism of why people have increased susceptibility to multiple sclerosis. So, so I should go out in the sun or not? In moderation, drink vitamin D fortified milk. And so some centers are routinely testing uh, vitamin D levels and are prescribing vitamin D supplements. We're in the South, and that's a lot of our kids outside, and, and it's, so we don't have quite the same issues. I haven't been doing that routinely yet, but it's something I'm seriously thinking about to at least look and see if our kids have normal vitamin D levels. But that's something that's, again, with our group of pediatric MS centers across the country, this is one of the things that we can look at as a group to see if there are differences. I'd like to thank Dr. Jane Ness, who's been my guest and we've been discussing the diagnosis and treatment of pediatric multiple sclerosis. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com to access our entire program library and to explore our on-demand and podcast features. I wish you good day and good health. This is Dr. Mark Busek, Director of Cardiovascular Services at Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in Hollywood, Florida. You are listening to Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.